Uh, all right. Well, as we as we get started, I would like to give a brief plug for uh, Wednesday night. If if you were Zachary's taking us through uh, sort of the biblical understanding of how we should read our Bibles and how that how that then shapes how family life is done and even reading the Bible in light of the structure of the family and what. So if if you haven't been there, you're missing out. It is so. So good. Good thing is he's got notes and handouts and I think he's free. He'd probably teach it all again to you. Uh, or if not, I, I will. But let, if, if you haven't been coming, let me just encourage you. It is a really helpful time. Uh, and we're, we're just getting into uh, the, some of it's only been three or four weeks. So, so you haven't missed that much. Let me just, just wanted to give a plug because every week uh, we get done. I go, man, that is so, so good. And I wish I'd have heard it when I first started reading scripture. Uh, and, and then I think, well, it's also good to hear it just repeatedly throughout your life. So uh, if you want to start reading your Bible or if you read your Bible, uh, it's a great class to go to. Uh, so uh, just one more, one more plug uh, for that. All right, let's turn in our Bibles, though, uh, to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1, uh, this beginning last week, we started to look at really the body of the letter that starts in verse 3. Uh, just uh, remember, he had said earlier that, that knowledge multiplies our grace and peace. Uh, and then we saw what that, he already starts talking about knowledge in the very next verse. Uh, so we know that this, this knowledge, uh, this knowledge of God and of Christ multiplies grace and peace. And then he starts to tell us, what do we know? What knowledge do we have that multiplies this grace uh, and peace to us? It's such beneficial uh, knowledge. Uh, and so we saw in verse 3 that God's divine power has, has granted to us, has, has gifted to us everything, all of the things uh, that have to do with life that is eternal life and, and godliness and so we saw last week, uh, as several of you were encouraged by, uh, that we can't make excuses anymore for our sinfulness. Uh, you can't let Romans 3 be your life verse uh, for why you're not obeying the Lord. Uh, that we, we, are, we are to be blameless and we can be. We are to be righteous and we can be. We are to be holy and we can be because of the grace and gifting uh, of God. Uh, and if you pull that back to what Peter has already said in First Peter, that linchpin verse that we hit on so often, uh, we are called to trace the life of Christ. Uh, and we can uh, because of Christ's work uh, in us, the Holy Spirit in us, God's gifting of the knowledge uh, that we need to do that, uh, which segues into the rest of verse 3. Because it's that knowledge that is going to be used by God to draw us into that life and godliness. It is, it, is that, it is the knowledge of God that is going to give us what we need to do those things. So uh, let's stand in the honor of reading God's word. We'll read verses three and four. Uh, and I mean, if we are, we are going to gain some knowledge. <laughs> uh, so grace and peace is going to be multiplied to us today, which is, which is awesome. Right? You don't have to pay for an indulgence for grace and peace to be multiplied to you. You don't have to have a special mass. You don't have to do any of those things. You don't have to tithe to get grace and peace multiplied to you. Uh, none of that is, we're not saying so a seed gift and grace and peace will be multiplied to you. We're about to have grace and peace multiplied to us because we're going to hear from God. We're going to get some knowledge of our God and Savior. So today, uh, as God works that knowledge in our hearts, we will leave today understanding God's grace and his peace even more. So uh, this is the real blessing of God to his people. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word, and we are so thankful that your word is wisdom, and wisdom that cries out to us from the streets, from the corner, uh, from the gate, uh, and that it is something we should treasure. And we see from Peter why we should treasure it, because knowing you is a great uh, blessing on us. As you teach us about yourself, as you make yourself known to your people, you are gifting us with grace 
uh, with peace, with life, with godliness. So, Father, may we treasure these gifts because we treasure you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So, so God has given us all that we need for life and godliness. We saw that first part of verse 3. But how does God do that? How does he gift us this life and godliness? Uh, where does it come from? How does it happen? How does it take place? How does he give us these gifts? Well, he tells us at the end of verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So this, this knowledge uh, or this, this, uh, this life and godliness is gifted to us by God. His divine power has gifted us these things, granted us these things through knowing him. So we can see this week that all of the Christian life comes from knowing God and knowing Christ. That that's where it comes. We saw last week that God is one who gifts us with everything you need for the Christian life. God doesn't just make you a Christian and you go and sort of have to cave man out to figure out how to do all this stuff yourself and pioneer your way through the Christian life. And you figure it out and you sort of develop like some sort of Christian civilization and you, you start it out, you know, really dumb. And God grows us, gives us all that we need for all these things and grows us uh, through our knowledge of him. Uh, that it is the knowledge of God and of Christ that is what gives us, it is through that knowledge that God gives us uh, what we need for life and, and godliness. So eternal life is ours, godliness is ours now, but it doesn't come naturally. God has gifted them to us. He has given them, he's, he's gifted them to us through the knowledge of him, through us knowing him. And eternal life and godliness come only through knowing God. That's the only way we get them. We saw earlier that grace and peace are multiplied through knowing God. Well, just uh, like grace and peace, life and godliness also have their origin in knowing God, in God letting us know him, in God teaching us about him. So God gives us these things, life and godliness, through us knowing him and knowing him better. You can say salvation comes from God making himself known. What we need for life, eternal life, what we need for godliness, that comes to us not by our own efforts, but by God gifting us by letting us know him. In other words, the relationship is repaired from his side, not ours. It's God who takes the initiative in, in giving us life, in giving us the things of life, the things of godliness, by letting us know him, by giving us a knowledge of him, a knowledge that we've already recognized just on a, just on a logical level is not something that humanity could, could grasp on its own, but something that not only just on a logical level, but also a spiritual level. So logically, you and I could never just understand God, know him. And spiritually, we don't want to understand God. We don't want to know him. So God has to be the one to gift us these things because they aren't, aren't natural to us. It is God that fixes our relationship with him. And we don't, we don't fix our, our relationship with God. He gives us a knowledge of him, a knowledge that leads to, uh, leads to salvation, a, a saving knowledge. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. In other words, it's not the world who's down there going, man, we've really messed up. Uh, okay, God, are you up there? Let, we would love to sit and, and you know, have a, have a discussion with you about how to fix this. You know, maybe Jesus can be the intermediary, uh, but we really, we really would like to, to you know, uh, fix this relationship with you. We realize we've really messed up. You know, we, we want to go into some sort of spiritual arbitration. That's not what happens. It is not the world that recon, re, reconciles itself with God. It is God. This is why all of this language that we've seen so far at the start of Second Peter is all about God's gifting, right? We have obtained a faith. What did that word obtained mean? It came from casting of lots. 
Uh, you've just, by God's grace, got this faith. We now see that everything you need for life and godliness, you didn't earn. It's given to you as a gift. All of this is pointing back to what Paul and Peter realize throughout Scripture, that, that salvation comes from the Lord hand, not, uh, Lord's hand, not ours. And so it is, it is God who reconciles the world to himself. Yes, eternal life, godliness are ours, but they're ours through our relationship with God, through God making himself known to us. On our own, nothing good dwells in us. On our own, we, have, we do not know God, nor do we have a desire to know God. But we're not on our own anymore as Christians. That's, that's what makes it something that causes you to praise God and to boast in God rather than to boast in yourself. Because you realize I'm here, I know God, not because I have decided to divine the divine mind, but because God has been gracious enough to make himself known to me, a wretched sinner. And it is well, to steal from the, the, the song we just sang, it is well with my soul only because God has made it well. Because my soul was very much not well. Uh, it was dead. And God gifted me with what I need for eternal life and for, for godliness. And, and how did he do that? How did he make himself known? He says, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We only know God. So how does he make himself known? He calls us to himself. All, all of the things of Christian life come from God, knowing God, knowing Christ. God calls us to himself. He calls us to know him through the knowledge of him who called us. God has called us to know him. Now, when we use the word call, we use it a little different than the Bible does. When we use the word call, it's almost like an invitation, right? Like, uh, like hey, it's me, God. And if you're not busy, uh, I would like to maybe... If you don't have anything else you'd like to know about, you to know a little about me. You know, almost as if you get it in the mail and it's God saying, RSVP, uh, let me know. Or like, you know, like you do in middle school. uh, Would would you like to know me, God, circle yes or no. Uh, But that's not, and that's, that's the idea we think of when we say call. But that's not how the Bible uses the word call. And especially in regards to our salvation. Uh... We would say that this is an effective calling, that God's call always achieves that for which it is calling out. In other words, the call is never rebuffed. As God would say, when God is in the heavens, he does all that he desires. That just as God's word, and it's going to make this parallel, kicking a piece of paper back here and it's really annoying me. He's going to make this parallel with his call and creation that just as God spoke in creation and what he called out came into being when he calls out to us it effects something in us it brings to being that which was not there it is creation ex nihilo in our souls the, the Bible actually makes that parallel to say, well, what does he mean by call? It is similar to when he calls out in creation because he is awakening our heart and creating faith in us. You can see it's Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, 16 and 17. It says, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. As it is written, I've made you father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that did not exist. Well, what is he calling into existence here? He tells us in in verse 16, faith. God is just like God called creation into existence and, and, and he in the same way calls our faith into existence. That just as he spoke creation into existence, he speaks our faith into existence. He is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that did not exist in this instance, our faith. God's calling here did not create potential for these things. God's calling achieves these things. Just like in creation, God didn't speak and that give the potential for creation. 
It didn't say that God spoke and then he waited to see what would happen. Uh, would the world decide to make itself or not? He spoke sun and then hoped that the sun would go, all right, I will shine. Uh, he spoke and those things were. Paul says in the same way that God who speaks into existence the universe is the one who speaks into existence your faith whose calling brings life to your dead heart. That when he speaks, that flow of breath into your life causes you to live. We saw this in Ezekiel 37, right? When he goes to the valley of dry bones, they're very dry bones. What happens when he breathes the breath of life into them? Those bones that wanted to walk, get up and walk, right? No, the bones come to life. There's not like he breathes the breath of life. Some of the bones decided, I don't want the breath of life. Uh, and they stay dead. No, he breathes life into the valley of bones, into those skeletal remains. And when he brings, breathes life into them, let's go back again, which is the exact same way he describes what he does in creation, right? Those things into which he breathes the breath of life, including Adam and Eve. In that same way, God's calling is his creating. And so when he calls us to these things, he is, call, he is bringing these things about. His calling achieves its purposes. As, as it said in Romans 4, he brings life to the dead and calls into existence those things that did not exist. That's bringing it about. It's not calling for the potential to those things, for those things to come about. He brings them about. And that's the same way Peter uses the word as well. It's, it's just, he's actually going to use this in the same way uh, in just a few verses. In chapter 1, verse 10, he's going to tie together calling and election. You make your calling and election uh, are tied together. Or in, in Romans 8, verse 30, where God's call comes after his predestination. God's calling is his speaking. His calling is always answered because it is, he calls based on what he intends to do. And so because he predestines, he then calls. Because he elects, he then calls. Those things are always tied together. You do not have one without the other, which is why the calling is always effective. Because he's given us hearts that want to hear, that want to love him. So when he changes our hearts and then calls, what does Jesus say happens to his sheep? His sheep do what? They hear his voice and what do they do? They follow him. So if you are his sheep... If he's, if he's turned your heart of stone into a heart of flesh, when he calls, it is not an invitation that some of the sheep will not follow. This calling is sure because his calling is his doing. His calling is his creating of these things. And what does he call us to? He calls us to his own glory and excellence. Now, this is, this is one of those, well, what do you do with this? What's he talking about here? Is God calling us to see his glory and excellence? He calls us to it, come and see my glory and excellence. We, whoa, that's amazing. And then respond in our own life of that. Or is God calling us to live lives that match his own glory and excellence? So he's saying, you're my child, live like this. He's calling us to, hey, here's your calling, now live like me as my child. As circa like Matthew 5, when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Or, you know, or 1 John, or John, all the time, he says, if, if you will live like your father. So which one is it? Yes, both, right? Uh, it's both because both are true in scripture. So you don't have to, you don't have to say one or the other. Because there are scripture that supports both of those things. Uh, so if someone came up and said, I think it means that we're supposed to look like him in what we do. I'd say, okay. If someone came up and said, I think this calling is allowing us to see him for who he is. I'll say, okay. Uh, and if someone comes up and says, I don't think it's either. Then I'd go, that, you know, you're in trouble. Uh, because it could be either one of those because he does both. He does both. God opens our eyes in salvation and our opening of our eyes does allow us to see his glory and excellence found in Christ. So when God does call us, there is a, it's not like God opens our eyes and we're like, I don't really like this whole Jesus thing, but I guess I'll be a Christian. 
When God opens our eyes, all of a sudden the cross to steal from Paul, which had the stink of death, now is what? The power of God unto life. Because God has changed us to now see what we once hated as to something now that we love. So in God's calling, does he make himself beautiful to us? Well, yes, because our hearts have been changed. Our hearts of stone have become hearts of flesh to desire the things of God. Our our hearts uh, that were enslaved to sin are now enslaved to righteousness. And just like we once thought sin was awesome, now with these changed hearts, we see righteousness and we go, I want that. That looks glorious. That looks beautiful. So, so God does call us to recognize our things. In, in salvation, God does open our eyes to his glory. The Bible tells us without the work of, of God in our hearts, we're, we're blind to the beauty of the gospel. We, we can't see it. So, so 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. For God who said, and here again, he gets back into paralleling our salvation with God's works and creation. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give light, uh, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we originally are blinded by sin, but when God calls us, God who says, let light shine in darkness, causes that light to shine in our hearts so that we see what? The knowledge of the glory of God seen in Christ. So in our salvation, God is very much making himself glorious and making himself excellent and making himself wonderful. That's why no one has to be dragged to salvation. Because when God changes our hearts, it is the most glorious thing we have seen. Uh, And so we run to it. God speaks into our hearts, let light shine in the darkness and light shines, boom. And we see the glory of God uh, in the face of Christ. And, and, And we yearn for that. We yearn for it. It is a glorious and excellent thing. This allows us to then see Christ for the glorious thing that he is. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, uh, which we'll get to again in just a second, says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may what? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what happens? He calls us out of darkness. Let light shine in the darkness. He calls us out of that darkness. And then we then proclaim his what? His excellencies. That part of what happens in salvation is we see God as the most excellent thing. As the most glorious thing, which is why when we are sinning, what is often the case is that we have allowed our love for the Lord to to dwindle, that candle to to flicker down. We have not fed it the fuel uh, that it needs. uh, And so, but when we see God as glorious, we we of course run to him. So he is calling us to see his glory and excellence in that way. He is, he is calling us to see his glory and excellence in Christ. But there's also a calling within that to then mirror that glory in our own lives. In other words, God doesn't just say, hey, look how wonderful I am. And we just sort of float through life in that beatific vision, right? Oh, and then get to heaven. And like, what happened? I don't know how I lived. I was, I was too busy just focusing on that. That God shows us his glory and then calls us to mirror that. As dumbfounding as it is. And we go, well, how can I do that? And he goes, yeah, that's why the Holy Spirit is there. That's what the Holy Spirit's going to do. You can't do that. Which is why I'm going to give you your spirit and cause him to dwell in you. Which is why, and you get to passages like in 1 John, where he's like, you can know, you can have assurance that you're a believer because it's chapter 4, verse 13, because of the spirit that dwells in you. Because what's it going to do? It's going to cause these things to grow in you that could not grow on your own. So you're going to see this fruit and you're going to be doing these things. You are going to be being godly. And when you're godly, you know what that's going to cause you to do? Not to go, I'm so great and godly. Uh, It's going to cause you to look and say, how in the world am I being godly? 
Where could that come from? Because it doesn't come from me. And God says, exactly. This must mean that I really am dwelling in you like I promised. That I really have changed your heart. That I, as, as to use John's language in 1 John, this shows that you abide in me and I abide in you. This is what that's proof of. But that God does call us to that. The glory of God seen in Christ is now supposed to be seen in us. Uh, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you, what? To walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and what? And glory. So he says, look, we've charged you. You've seen the glory of God. You've seen, you know, uh, Isaiah's vision here. Isaiah 6 vision. You've seen the holiness and grandeur of God. You've seen the innumerable riches found in Christ. You've seen to steal from 2 Corinthians. You've seen the, the glory of God found in that. So what should you do? What does he say? Walk in a manner worthy of that glory. If that's your God and you're his child, you are supposed to walk in a manner worthy of God's glory. If you say you're his child, then walk as your child. Just like the book of Proverbs says, look, if you've got a child that is disobedient and insolent, it brings shame on the father and on the mother. Brings you shame. In the same way, if you're saying, if you're going around your life going, yeah, I'm a Christian. I've got a Jesus fish on the back. And every one of my radio stations is a Christian radio station. If you're saying that and then living however you want to live, that's not bringing God glory. It's not walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. So when God does call us to his own glory and excellence, he's saying, here's my glory and excellence. Now live that. Walk in a manner worthy of how worthy I am. Let my glory change how you live. We are, like we said last week, we're just moonshine. We're just reflecting the glory of God. But we're supposed to reflect the glory of God. Right? If... If every moon was a new moon, we'd never know there was a moon, right? If every moon was just dark, if it never reflected the sun's light back, we wouldn't know that thing was out there. But what is its purpose? All the way back to Genesis 1, to, to reflect light in the night. And that's what we're supposed to do. We're, we're not glorious in and of ourselves. We have a glory that comes from another and we're supposed to, we're supposed to mirror the glory of God and how we, we live and how we walk. So you cannot go around saying God is great and God is glorious if you're not living and walking in a way that shows he's glorious. Because if you think he's glorious, it will change how you live. And if it's not changing how you live, you don't think he's that great. Because you can think of all the other things that you think are wonderful and you'll change your life around it. Right? I mean, good night. For a month, uh, I got rid of bread. Right? No bread, and I'm looking at carbs, and I'm attacking sugar like it's the Nazis. Uh, why? Because I thought, man, this keto thing looks fun. Uh, let's do that. It is not fun. Uh, but I changed my life based on something so trite. And if you looked at your life, I bet you could find 10 to 15 things that you've looked at and gone, that seems neat. And changed how you live, changed what you do at night, changed what you do during the day. You might have even gone out and gotten a degree based on what you thought was neat. And I would like to do that for the rest of my life. So I will spend four years just learning about that thing so I can do it for the rest of my life. Why? Because you think it's awesome, right? I'd like to spend every day doing that. What if you thought the same way about God? What if God was so glorious and so wonderful that it reshaped everything about your life? That it reshaped what you thought about what your job is supposed to be. That it reshaped what you thought about family life. That it reshaped what you thought about how you can talk and how you can't talk. How you, what you can do and what you can't do. Not because you're trying to be perfect, but because he is. And he is your God and you're his child and you wouldn't dare bring any sully on his name. And so the Bible says, look, yes, God is calling us to. So when we see that vision of the Lord and his glory, it's supposed to change how we live. There is a calling to us. Look, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness, and I've shown you me. I've given you a knowledge of who I am. Now go and walk in a manner worthy of what you've seen. 
You've been called to see the beauty of Christ, the, the majesty of God found in the Son. If you want, if you want to grow in, in godliness, if you want to live more fully the life that is, that is yours, if you want to understand that life and godliness, then you need to bury yourself in the glory and excellence of God. God has called you with his glory and he's called you to his glory. Salvation is, is an opening of our eyes, but it is also a path placed before us. So we're called by the glory of God to see that our eyes are open to his glory, but we're also called to mirror that glory in our own lives. It's, it's, it's Peter's not saying anything new. This is exactly what he said that he would dare to say in first Peter when he said, all right, trace the life of Christ. That the life of Christ was given to you as a tracing paper for your own life. And you're like, what? Me? Trace Christ? How? And we find out through God's work in us. As he reveals to us more about himself, that tracing becomes more clear. Some of you are not tracing Christ in your life because the picture of Christ in your life is very dim. It's fuzzy and faded. It's like a, it, 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 it's like a bad picture, an out of focus picture. Because you don't know as much as you should. And, and, and the reason you don't know as much as you should is because you haven't looked as much as you should. Because the book of Proverbs is going to tell us over and over, wisdom ain't hiding, right? If you want wisdom, you can cry out for it. And if you're not crying out for it, wisdom is staring, standing in the street crying out to you. So what we need, and we know that Christ is the wisdom of God. So as, as, if you want to know more, if you want that picture to be more clear and focused, know more about your God. The more time you spend knowing about the Lord, the more beautiful that picture will become, which is good for you, right? You will see God as more glorious. And then the more adept you will be at tracing that picture. As you see the beauty of God for who he is, as you see God's glory for who he is, as you are dumbstruck like Isaiah at, oh my goodness, I can't believe that's God and this is me. And, I, and, and, and we have to have this relationship and me not die. As you become more aware that I can't believe I'm his child. And you see how great your father is. It will encourage you to walk in a way more worthy of that father. So the best thing you can do as a Christian, if you want to know more about him, is to cry out for wisdom, to cry out for knowledge. And then he'll answer that prayer by saying, yeah, I've given you everything that you need here. To make you complete, competent for every good work. As, as Paul will say in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Everything you need is there. So, so it's not even a prayer that we have to worry about. Is he going to answer it? It's a prayer that he already has answered. And then he's answered it by putting his words in a book. And then he's put his Holy Spirit in our hearts so that our feeble and simple minds will always be able to understand those words. That he will teach us the things that we need to know. That he will cause us to remember the things that we didn't even know we needed to know them when we first read them. But God will, God will increase our knowledge and that will increase our faithfulness, our godliness, our, our mirroring of his own glory. And it is through that knowledge that comes in seeing Christ that we look at verse 4. Did someone tell me what time it is? I have absolutely no idea. Huh? 11.30. Okay, we definitely got time for verse 4. All right, look at verse 4. It could be Tuesday. And I'd be like, all right, sure, fine. By which he has granted to us. So, so this knowledge of Christ gives to us his promises. Look at verse four. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So, so look at this chain of gifting that we've got. Again, we've got now another gifting. This is verse four, that same word granted um, to, to gift, to give to us, to grant to us. God has gifted us everything we need for life and godliness through knowledge of him. And he gifts to us his precious and very great promises through that knowledge as well. So, so here we do see that though we currently have everything we need for life and godliness, we're still waiting for something even greater. This is more of that already, not yet, that we see throughout the pages of Scripture because we are still waiting on promises to be fulfilled. We are still waiting on these precious and very great promises to meet their total fruition. 
And, and you, life, life and godliness are. Life and godliness are a reality and a promise at the same time. Eternal life is a reality, but also a promise. We have them, but we do not yet have them in their fulfillment. As we will one day. One day, you know, we've got life now, but one day this life inside us will be met with physical eternal life as well in a world where there is no decay. Right? So we're still waiting on that. We have eternal life, but the fulfillment of what all that will be is yet to come. In the same way, we have godliness now, but as Peter is going to say, one day we will be in a world where godliness reigns everywhere, where holiness reigns over everything. A new heavens and a new earth where righteousness reigns uh, both outside us and inside us. So, yes, we've got all the things of godliness now and we can be godly and blameless now. But the, in the end, uh, there will be not even temptation toward ungodliness, not even temptation toward unholiness, because we will be holy and living in a world that is fully holy. No serpents in any places of the garden. Um, but that's one day. That's to come. That's part of a, a, a precious and very great promise. Uh, but they are promises. Uh, he says promises that we will uh, ultimately be partakers uh, so that through them uh, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, if you're watching the wrong program on TBN, uh, what they're going to say from this is that you become little gods, Right. Uh, or if you have the wrong Mormon theology uh, or something like that. I mean, if you want to make people happy, tell them, you know what you're going to be one day? You're going to be God. Uh, and they're like, that matches because that's kind of how I'm living today. Uh, and so, uh, but that's what he's talking about here when he says partakers of the divine, not, the divine nature. It doesn't mean that we become God. The word partakers there is the word fellowship. It's a word that became very popular in the 90s on anybody on a college campus. The word koinonia. Uh, it's the word for fellowship. Uh, that you are going to be fellowshipping with God's own character. You will, you will be fellowshipping with the divine nature. In other words, what he's getting at is Genesis 1 is going to be fulfilled in you. You become the image bearers that we are supposed to be from the beginning. And so these image bearers, you are bearing the image of God in creation. That one day, that's what you'll be doing fully. You will be being the image bearers of God on this earth as you are meant to be. And that's a promise that isn't just future, right? Because we're supposed to do that now and we are and can be doing that now through Christ's work in us. And so as, as, as we uh, take up eternal life and as our lives are, are filled with godliness, we take on more of the image of God in us, who is himself eternal and sinless. So when it says through, through, uh, through, these, through these things, through life and godliness, through eternal life and godliness, we become partakers of the divine promise that, that we will uh, uh, then be partakers of the divine nature. Um, what he's saying is we become more clear images of God who is eternal, who has life, and God who is, of course, godly. So as we take on these things, uh, we become more clear image bearers of God. We fulfill Genesis 1 more clearly in our life. This is what Ephesians 4.24 points out. He says, put on the new self. And here you're going to see the connection with creation again in Genesis 1. Created after the likeness of God. Remember that Genesis, that's Genesis 1 language. Genesis 1 and 2 language here of man, uh, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Uh, he says in Ephesians 4.24, when you put on the new self, that eternal life and godliness, when you are saved, you are, you are putting on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So that in our, our saved life, we are supposed to look more like God and we will look more like God. We will be better image bearers in his creation, mirroring who the creator is. We are creations that mirror the, the glory and majesty of our creator. And when we put on life and godliness, that image becomes more clear. Again, the, these promises are not just solely future. They're, they're happening now. We are image bearers now. 
We are tasting his promises now. The new self, he says, to put on now, uh, one of righteousness and holiness. He doesn't say, you're, you're going to one day put on the new self. He says, put off the old self and put on the new one and put it on now. This new self created after the likeness of God uh, that is going to uh, be in true righteousness and, and holiness. Put that on. So it's not just future, not just future, uh, but its fulfillment is future. It is part of the great promises of God. So I, I, I try to be his image bearer now. I know that one day I will perfectly be that image bearer of the Lord, that everything about me will, will be a, a, a mirror of his own glory and majesty. But how can this be true of us? Because we're all fallen. How can you and I, fallen image bearers, all of a sudden reflect anything but the dunghill uh, that we've been wallowing in. How do we, how do we go from mirroring the, the world to mirroring uh, God? Well, he tells us, he says, because we've escaped from our old lives. See, it's at the end of verse four, he says, having escaped so we do all these things, we, we, we become partakers of the divine nature. How? Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. I mean, the world is, is broken both materially, right? Just degrading. And you got all sorts of material uh, problems with sin, uh, interactions between humans and these creatures that they're supposed to have dominion over, creatures killing each other, you know, uh, plants, you know, growing thorns and thistles, and creation materially is just messed up. But it is also broken because of sinful desire that dominates the heart of God's image bearers, that we're supposed to be the ones to go, to, be, to, to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. Uh, And so as a result, this subdued dominion is not subdued. It is in rebellion. Waiting for what? The redemption of these image bearers, but waiting nonetheless. The the problem with the world is not just a material problem with the world. There's a problem in our hearts, in the hearts of God's image bearers, in the hearts of his creations. That's going to be important for understanding the end of 2 Peter when it talks about how the world is going to be cleansed uh, with fire. Uh, it's not just saying the material world is going to be sort of, you know, let's, that's the problem. Let's just re- redo the material world. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cleansing of, of holiness uh, primarily. So we, though, are able to be holy and blameless. How? He says, you're able to be these image bearers. You're able to partake of the divine nature, to have fellowship with the divine nature. How? Because God has set us free from those sinful desires. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. This too, escape is not just something that is future, right? He doesn't say that one day you'll escape the world and its sinful desires. He says that's happened now. It has already happened. He's going to say this again in chapter 2, verse uh, 18, and in chapter 2, verse 20. He's going to say the same thing, that you've escaped those sinful desires. And this is really what Peter has already told us in 1 Peter chapter 2, that verse that we just looked at earlier, where we saw the words about God's excellence and his calling. Well, here we see it again, 1 Peter 2, 9, that we're to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. God set us free from our sinful desires by giving us new hearts, hearts that are no longer corrupted by those sinful desires. He called us, brought us out of that darkness. That's how the escape happens. Uh, your escape from darkness and sinful desires, your escape from the corruption of the world is not like your own sort of escape from Alcatraz moment where, you know, God sort of comes and whispers in you, hey, uh, here's the key. Uh, and you've got to like, do, 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 you know, and get your own way out of this corruption. God calls you out of it. He rescues you from it and places you in his marvelous light. And so since we've escaped that corruption, We've also escaped, it's what? It's sinful desires. We have, as Romans 6 says, we're no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves to what? To righteousness. Now, the early church picked up on this fairly quickly. Augustine, which is appropriate that we mention him so close to the Reformation. uh, He said, he he noted four sort of phases of the human heart. 
that related to where you are in the story of redemption. So he says, in the garden, you know, Adam and Eve, they're able to sin. They were able to sin. After the fall, but before Christ, humanity is not able not to sin. Right? There's that slavery to sin. We are not able not to sin. But when Christ saves us, our hearts that were once not able not to sin, now in Christ are able to not sin. Right? That's sort of our new, new situation in Christ. We are able to not sin. We don't have to do it. I think it forces us to have to sin. But then one day in eternity, we will be not able to sin. Uh, and so you can see that chain there of what's happening in the human heart that one day uh, this heart that is now able to not sin will one day not be able to sin. Now, why will we not be able to sin? Well, there'll be no temptation. Our hearts will be fully formed into the likeness of God. We will be fully slaves to righteousness. There will be no serpents to whisper in our ears. There'll be a place where only righteousness dwells. So all of that stuff uh, makes it so that we are fully bound to the Lord. So, but right now we as believers, we're not there yet. We're still uh, able to sin, but we're also able not to sin. So we, we, we are able to live godly lives, to be holy, to be blameless, to not sin. Because we have, not one, not one day will, but we have escaped the corruption of the world with its sinful desires. That has happened. That's why we said last week, there's no more excuses for us as Christians to be like, well, that's just, you know, that's just me <laughs> and sinful me. You no, know, you are choosing to make that sinful you. You've escaped. It's like, it's like having someone who's been set free from the chains and then the chains aren't on them. They've been set free and they're walking back over me like, oh, look, I'm still chained to it. And like, no, you're not. Like, just pick those off your wrist right now. Oh, it's a pretty tight lock. Like, I can, I can lift it off right now if you want me to. No, it's tight. It's, oh, man, it's got me. It's bound me deep. It's got me deep, Chris. No, it doesn't. Because of the work of Christ in you, you have escaped the corruption of this world with its sinful desires. You've escaped it. So that's why Romans 6 says, how foolish would you be to go back to that master? How foolish do you have to be to, you've got God. This is why Romans 6, 23 says what it does. Like, you've got this master that paid you wages. Oh, he paid you all right. But what did he pay you? Death. That was his wages. And let me tell you, you want, you want to have an argument, you want to have an argument about minimum wage. Like if someone's paying you death, I'll get on that argument. Uh, you know, like I worked 40 hours, what'd you get? They killed me, killed me for it. But he said, that's what you're doing though. You've got this master that had killed you. Not only threatened, not just threatened to kill you, but already did. And you're like, I think I want to go and work for that guy again. I want to sin. That's what you're doing in sin. You are, you are being, you've been set free from that. He says, why would you go back to that master when in Christ you have someone who gives you the free gift, not the wage? I mean, Paul's, Paul's not like he forgot the word wage there, right? For the, for the wages of sin is death, but the wages of God is eternal life. What did he say? But the free gift of God is eternal life. Like, why would you, Christian, Continue in sin when you have escaped, when God by his grace has set you free from those desires. And we need to understand sin for the grievous thing that it is. Or otherwise we will play with it and it will burn us down. Because God has set you free from that. Fix your eyes on the glory of God, the excellence of God, like Peter calls about here. You know what you'll find? You'll find your heart to be wet wood for sin. If you want to you wet the wood of your heart against sin, fix your eyes on your creator. Fix your eyes on your savior. Know more about him and what that does. The more you know about God and Christ, the less desire you'll have to sin. So if you have a desire problem right now and you see yourself desiring to sin too much, then you need to pray first off for God to give you knowledge because you just, you don't want to just think I can open this book and understand everything about God's word. He said, God, you got to teach me this stuff. You got to teach me what I need to know, when I need to know it. And the good thing is you promise already that that's exactly what you do. So say, God, let me know you more because I'm tired of sinning. I'm tired of sinning because it 
because it brings bad results, just practically. It's stupid. Never brings happiness. Husband and wife never fight. And at the end of that, go, that was probably the best time in our marriage, wasn't it? It doesn't happen. When it's over, we're all like, let's never do that again. Uh, and and, and this, so, so there's just practically no reason that you would want to sin. It brings no good to your life. And then just, just salvation-wise, you have been set free from that sin. Why would you go and take it back up? The problem is we live in a world so filled with sin and so telling you that sin is not only okay, but it's good that we as Christians buy into that rather than buying into what God has said. That it will kill you. The world says it won't kill you. It'll make you happy. We've even, we've even as Christians managed to make it a conversation. Where we're like, yeah, I'm not happy, but I'm obedient. And it's like, what? Uh, so you've bought, not, so, okay. At least you're halfway to where you need to be. Uh, But you don't realize that sin destroys. Sin will destroy you and those you love in your home and you'll be done. And you as parents will look back and your kids will be graduated. And you'll realize the only reason you stayed together was for them. And you're looking at each other and say, man, we were supposed to be helpmates to each other and doing what we were supposed to be doing and growing our home in godliness. We do any of that. You know what? Now it's just me and you. And I'm not sure I like you very much. Because the home has never been about God. It's been a place filled with the sin of indifference. And laziness. And we've reap, we're reaping the harvest. But we, we always say, but tomorrow I'm going to fix that. Tomorrow I'll fix that. Ew, man, the relationship between me and my wife is not the relationship between Christ and the church. And I recognize that. But you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to humble myself, be broken before the Lord and say, fix this because I messed it up. We're going to think that we're just going to kind of breeze our way through our Christian life. And all of a sudden, the Lord's just going to fix it somehow. But we are continuing to rechain ourselves to the corruptions of this world. Saying, I'm going to live selfishly for me. You know, because I don't like what he's doing um, because what he's doing doesn't make me happy. I don't like what she's doing. Why? Because what she's doing doesn't make me happy. And so since we live that way, next thing you know what happens? No one's happy. No one's happy because the only joy in life is found when you give yourself fully to the glory and excellence found in God. And you walk worthy of what you see when you look at who God is. And you know what's always been true in scripture? No one has ever seen God in his glory and walked away unchanged. So if you ain't changing, it's because you ain't looking. Because if you look at who God is, if God opens your eyes to the glory that is found in Christ, your life will never be the same. And sin will look uglier than it has ever looked. Let's pray.